Hey, everybody, welcome to the Bedside Matters podcast, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We'll hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper and Anna Vercino. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing great. Why did I do a sing song? I don't know. <laughs> it, just felt, it just felt like it. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Maybe we do an episode where we find out why people talk like that. But Anna, what are we covering? Well, listen, today? today we're not talking about upward inflections in speech or dialect, but we are going to be talking about artificial sweeteners and heart disease, the whole blood clot thing. I'm really excited to touch on that. Um, spinal cord stimulation, restoring arm mobility after a stroke. Very cool. And this just happened. A fifth person was cured of HIV with a bone marrow transplant, which may be, I can't wait to ask David about this, about what that what that portends for the future as far as curing other other things with bone marrow transplant. And also, we have a caller who wants to talk about something new that Apple is doing or trying to do that could change people's lives who have diabetes. So let's get to it, David. Artificial sweeteners. I, I don't know about everybody else here. Well, I know about David because David and I, we, we like the pink stuff, the uh, the sweet and low. Oh, God. What? Yeah. You, you obviously hate your taste buds, but congratulations, you like the pink stuff. I can't help. It's not a choice. It's just I don't like the yellow. I don't like the blue. I actually carry it in my car. I have oh it in my, my pocket God. because if you go to a place and they said, do you want this or that? I go, no. I tried the stevia. It does nothing. It just no, doesn't stevia do it. is when you if you like the taste of sweetness, but it's filtered through dirty sweat socks. Okay, well put. So, David, what do we know about artificial sweeteners? Because not only do we use them to add sweetness to our products, but it's in so many products, the diet products that are out there. And I'm guessing not good. Before I get into that, I think Peter, the good news for us is that yeah. I don't see this product in the pink stuff. Oh. I, I looked this up. I knew this was going to be important for the two of us. Yes. The bad guy in these sweeteners is something called erythritol. And erythritol is an, a natural metabolic byproduct of everything we do during the day as our body metabolizes things. It turns out the people that have the highest levels of erythritol in their systems, those are the top 25%, have a two times more likely incidence of heart attack, stroke, and death. And there are several reasons for this, but this is the culprit in these artificial sweeteners. Do you know which sweeteners, the list which sweeteners have erythritol? You have to read the ingredient list. Yes. It's in most of them, by the way. But remember, it's a natural metabolic byproduct. So everybody has this in their system. What does it do bad for the system? What it, what's its uh, negative? It, it does a couple things. It causes our platelets to become more activated and therefore more sticky, which promotes clot formation, which is a, certainly a negative for people that have heart disease and right. uh, high blood pressure. Uh, it also works on our microbiome. It creates inflammation in our microbiome, and that inflammation translates into insulin resistance, uh, abnormal glucose metabolism. So there are several things that this natural byproduct that we have aggravates our likelihood of getting these serious illnesses and, and death. So 
the the real question then becomes, what do you do about this? Right. First of all, you should, as you said, Anna, you should read labels and see what's in these products. You should try to switch to non-sweetener products, especially carbonated beverages, which have high concentrations of these. There was a study that was done where they took people that were taking artificial sweeteners in beverages versus people that were taking regular sugared beverages. And they studied these people for a year, and they found out that the people that were taking the artificial sweeteners, and this was all done for obesity, the people that were taking the artificial sweeteners gained more weight. And so they were, they were less effective. And probably as we go back to the effect on the microbiome, that explains that. I want to ask questions on this because being in the low carb community, I got this article from no fewer than 500 people. And because people were, there's all sorts of arguments about, should you have the artificial sweetener? Should you not? People are motivated to not, to still, you know, have your cake and eat it too. They want to be able to eat something, a sweet treat without raising their blood sugar. And that becomes the first motivation. But hearing from you that this ruins the gut microbiome, which is an issue with a lot of obese and metabolically broken people, why would you tempt fate like that? You know what I mean? Like, why, why would you, like, I like that you're bringing this aspect up because people aren't talking about how that, that study that you said just now with the obese people gaining more weight in the long term after a year, that's an even more important study than this one that was eight people. That's the one that to me is fascinating. When I hear that though, coming from a semi-scientific background in, in the, in college, I did research and stuff on um, Parkinson's. Whenever I hear studies, you go, so the obese people gain more weight. But then I go, well, hold on a second. So obese people probably are using these sweeteners because they're careful about their weight because they have an issue. But without it, they may have gained weight anyway. Maybe that community mm-hmm. that's yeah. using it would have gained weight. I'm not saying that it's, it's, there's no correlation. But I always look at that and I go, wait a minute, when you look at a study, what else would have happened and what group is doing that? So if it's people who are obese and they're trying to lose weight or watch their weight because they're concerned, but there, as my mother said, from the eaters, maybe that same group is gaining weight and would have gained weight regardless. So that's that's all because there's a there's a link. Yeah, but weren't, but, not, was, but yeah. he just said in this beverage study, right, Doc, that the, the ones drinking the actual beverages with sugar gained less weight than the ones drinking the beverages with artificial sweeteners? Were they as both the same weight? Because they're not weight conscious. Those oh. people may not have an issue. That's what I'm, again, it may be wrong, but I always go there just because you don't make the leap and go, oh, it's definitive. You know, This is why you should have finished your education in the sciences. <laughs> there, there is another explanation for this, Anna, to your point about the carbonated beverages. If you look at the labels on these carbonated beverages, first of all, people that are drinking those beverages that seem to be safer, they end up drinking more. So they're getting more of these artificial sweeteners. But the other thing that happens, when you look at the labels, there's an extra salt component to these artificial carbonated beverages. And the more salt you have, the more thirst is activated. Therefore, have you ever noticed that if you drink a Diet Coke and... (laughs) I'm I'm sorry if I'm upsetting anybody that owns Diet Coke and they're listening to this, but the Diet Coke has a lot of salt. So you drink the Diet Coke. By the way, I love Diet Coke. And all of a sudden, you want another one 
do you want another one because it just tasted so great? No, you want another one because you just had this big salt intake and you want more fluid. And so there's another component here that's sort of subtle, but that's part of it. Got it. By the way, Peter, you're asking about erythritol. So if you eat erythritol on its own, it will cause disaster pants. So what they do is they mix it with things like monk fruit, um, xylitol, other kinds of artificial uh. sweeteners and, so that it doesn't, because it actually tastes very similar to sugar, but it can be very upsetting to the gut microbiome, <laughs> hence the disaster pants. So, and I'm, I'm only saying this because of, again, in the low carb space, I've been addressing like, what should you cook with if you want to have a sweet treat? And I always tell people with my recipes, I don't use erythritol because it makes me sick. Like I will physically be very sick from it. And so I've learned to avoid it. But if so, if you want to use it, that's on you. Some people are fine with it. So I just, I don't know. I find it very interesting, this whole thing. It it certainly exploded in the low-carb community. And some people are like, it's okay. It's not, you know what I mean? There's a lot of infighting. And it was interesting to watch. But I was also like, like with anything, are you using it as a crutch? Or are you using it, you know, sensibly? Or do you carry around the pink stuff in your car? All right, don't let it. So you're laughing at me. And by the way, I'll laugh at you because you know the image I got of the low-carb? Like I'm driving up to this gate, a guard gate. And it's the entrance to the low-carb community which I, I would love to be part of, but they won't let me in. I've applied three times. I tell you what, you don't, you don't want to, don't, don't drive away. If we go back to the topic of what should we do about this, to me, it seems perfectly logical. If we know that 25% in the highest erythritol natural uh, elevated group, why don't we test people routinely like we do for blood counts and electrolytes and uh, kidney functions? Why don't we test people in the blood for erythritol? We're not doing that. I don't know if there's a simple blood test for this or a urine test, but let's say that you knew that you were in that top 25% and you had a two times more likely incidence of getting these other chronic serious illnesses, including death. To me, that makes some sense. I don't have an answer for this. I'm just raising a question. Spinal cord stimulation. We've talked about this a little before, but they're testing now with electrical stimulation that people can get back some mobility, David, after stroke and arm use. Yes, and this this goes to a concept of neuromodulation, which we've all heard of. Our, our nerves and the brain, these pathways, are there's some plasticity. So we can actually teach an old dog new tricks. We can actually train these pathways and we can modulate these, these pathways. How this works specifically for these people that had the strokes, and by the way, the upper extremity, the, the upper uh, extremity limbs, hands and arms were actually done in motorcycle victims. There were three guys that were riding motorcycles and they became paralyzed. They couldn't use their upper extremities and they started implanting these devices. And what a, what a neurostimulator is, is it's an external device that goes around the outside of the spinal cord so it's, it's essentially a non-invasive procedure. That's and so they cool. stimulate electrically these areas of the spinal cord that activate certain parts of the body. So in the motorcycle victims who had lost their upper extremity functions, they stimulated these nerves and they got 
an incredibly positive response to them using their upper extremities. I mean, there are other studies that show that you can actually teach fine motor functioning with people playing a guitar, people oil painting, people using fine motor skills. So the technology is really incredible. And the technology for the lower extremities has been around a long time, where you can get people that have had a stroke and you implant in the right areas and the lumbar and sacral areas of the spinal cord, and they can get some movement activity in the lower extremities. So the upper extremity uh, data now is very fascinating. Another fascinating part of this, it doesn't have to be stroke victims. It can be like with the motorcycle victims. It can be an injury to the spinal cord. Interestingly enough, with strokes, if you try to use these implants in someone that's had a stroke, immediately after a stroke, it doesn't work. You have to wait a while. You have to wait months before everything sort of equilibrate, before this technology will actually start to work. But to me, the more interesting part of this explanation and and all these studies is that you can use these stimulations for a period of weeks, sometimes months, and then turn off the stimulator. And you'll get these same results for months and probably years, we think. We're into years now looking at this, where these activities have improved. This is the definition of neuromodulation. You have actually modulated these nerve conduction pathways in the brain, and they've learned new tricks. They've learned how to go back to doing these things. So it's really fascinating. We know people, I know we have a mutual friend who has MS, and the doctor told her that do extensive exercise, and you may be able to create new neural pathways. Does this do the same thing? Does this, if it's a dead neural pathway that can't be regenerated, does the body, if given the stimulation, will it generate a new neural pathway? Can it create something new? It may be a new pathway, Peter, and it may be a repair of the damaged pathway. Now, in MS, you have a different situation. You have the myelin, which is the protective covering of the nerve tissue that's destroyed. So these nerves are now raw and open, and they don't transmit their messages Mm. as well. So this may be true in non-MS patients. I have a couple MS patients that uh, we've tried putting nerve stimulators in, and they really haven't done much. We started doing this for pain, and we started doing this for pain in people with MS because they have pain syndromes from this. And it really wasn't that effective. But the question's a very good question. In our, this just happened, I find this fascinating. A a guy, our fifth patient ever in the world on the planet received a bone marrow transplant and now he has, without any detectable levels of HIV in his body, he's for four years. How how is this possible and, and will be a cure for HIV? It is a cure so far for these five people. They've actually been doing this since 1982. They've been trying bone marrow transplantation really? for, for this disease and many other diseases. There was a case that was reported years ago in Iran of someone that had HIV, and that person seemed to do very well. That person sort of lost a follow-up, so we're not sure where that's going. But it works in a very interesting way. To transplant your bone marrow, you're transplanting all of the cells that the bone marrow makes. So it makes these cells that are red cells and white cells and platelets. And it's, it's actually the 
some of the white blood cells that are contributing to this benefit that are actually responsible for this benefit. But there's a protein that is in our system naturally. It's called a CCR5 protein. When that protein allows for the HIV virus to enter into our normal cells and do its damage, there are mutations in some people to this CCR5 protein. So those proteins are no longer active. So those people have a natural immunity to HIV. They don't get HIV. So when they're looking at these bone marrow transplants, the, the donors are people that have this CCR5 mutation. So you're giving someone that has the disease and has all the setup for the disease, you're taking that bone marrow away and you're putting in a donor marrow that has this mutation so the HIV can't get into the cells. That's how that's working. It's very complicated. And here's where it gets complicated. We're not just, first of all, any kind of transplant, you have to give medications that inhibit transplanted tissue from becoming its own immune threat to the system. So there are so many other illnesses that are riding along with the HIV problem. So people Mm. that have other immunologic problems, other chronic illness problems, cancers, the biggest one, they have so many other issues that transplanting for HIV patients, these mutated donor cells, may not work because they may have other illnesses. For instance, COVID. When COVID came out, um, a lot of these transplants that they were trying for HIV patients were invalidated because a lot of these people that were immunocompromised with HIV, they had one big issue that prevented them from being sort sort of pure in in their system, if that makes any sense. So there are a lot of other illnesses. Oh, sorry. I was going to say the path and the timeline to this becoming a more widespread treatment is more complicated than we, even though they've been doing it since 1982, that's why it hasn't swept the nation, I guess. Yes. But so these five people were lucky. They were, they, they had all the right issues that allowed them to, to succeed. I think a, a more interesting issue with HIV is, is the, uh, what we're currently using as PrEP which is the pre-exposure prophylaxis treatment of several antivirals that that treat HIV. And people that take PrEP don't get HIV. They don't transmit HIV, even though they Mm. have a very low level of HIV reservoir in their system. It's not enough to transmit this illness. Uh, And this is, um, it's it's very common. It's 99% effective uh, in routine patients with HIV, patients that are still using IV drugs, they still have about a 75% effective rate. So it's really amazing therapy. Uh, one of the problems with PrEP is that it's not universally available. Uh, the Biden administration, again, not to get political, but they've actually included into their proposed legislation monies that would be allocated for everyone to be able to get PrEP. How that plays out is not to be determined at this point, but I have a guess. And that treatment has really changed the landscape so that if you're HIV positive and you're on PrEP, um, you can have 
normal sexual activity. Uh, you have to you have to wait a while if you're going to have anal sex. You have to wait at least a week or so after being on the prep. If you're having heterosexual activity, vaginal sex, you have to wait about three weeks. But the nuances to using prep are few and far between. But this is the game changer. David, before we take get to our caller, just real quick, bone marrow transplant, because that you use for other cancers, etc. How drastic a, a procedure is that? I, I had a friend who um, was ill and they had the bone marrow transplant and he got an infection because he didn't have any resistance and that he passed away because of that. Have they made advances in bone marrow transplantation so that it's easier and less, um, what's the word I'm looking for, less dangerous, I guess? Peter, that's a great question, and it's relevant in the last, I would say, six months, because we have now actually been able to treat people with certain medications. These are all these immunosuppressive medications that we were giving these immunosuppressive medications after the transplant. What we found was that if we gave these people this medication prior to the transplant for a period of time, these statistics for a positive outcome went way up. So that's one thing that's very... By the way, is that a protocol? It is now. Okay. It's very recent. The other protocols that have been put into effect are, are those that isolate people that get the transplantation for a period of time, no visitors and no activity for quite a while. So we're, we're keeping these people in a bubble for a while. And then they have to go on these immunosuppressive drugs afterwards, but they work. I was a medical student at UCLA where they did the first transplant for AML, which is a form of leukemia that worked. And I was just lucky enough to be on that rotation and that team to participate in that. And this was 130 years ago. So we've, we've come a long way, but we've been doing this for a long time. Amazing. Let's get to our caller. Chris has a question for you about something that is big in the news that impacts a lot of people out there with diabetes. Hi, Dr. Kipper. I'm a diabetic, and I have to constantly check and stay on top of my blood sugar numbers. Do you know if anyone is close to coming up with a new way to test that doesn't involve having to prick your skin? This is under development. Apple's created this paradigm of technology now that combines a couple different technological mechanisms. One involves photonics and then uh, optical absorptions with spectroscopy. These are, these are light-sensitive technologies that allow us to go into, again, you're wearing this watch, and the watch with these technologies can sense the glucose concentration, not in the blood, but in the interstitial fluid around the blood, So you're not measuring the glucose in the bloodstream. You're measuring the amount of glucose that is in the interstitial or environmental space around the blood cells. And so we are establishing norms for what that is and how that relates to potential diabetes. This is actually the technology that was used uh, by the continuous glucose monitoring systems. The, The one that's most commonly used now is the called the Freestyle Libre system. And that's a technology where you put this on your skin. There's a little needle that goes under the skin and goes into this interstitial fluid. 
And that is, it's the same technology. It's a device that you have to wear and there's a needle involved. So what Apple has done is that they've used the same technology or the same understanding of how we're going to look at sugar levels from a different source, but not have to stick people. They can do this through photosensitive and and other technologies. Wow. Amazing. In reading about this, it, it appeared that Steve Jobs, ages ago, looked at the Apple Watch as a health device also, that he had predicted that it could be used that way, which is pretty amazing that he was that much of a visionary. You know, for me, it would be just tell the time correct. <laughs> but this guy knew that it could be used. Watches, no, we don't need device. watches to tell time anymore. Right. Think about this. And we've spoken before about how AI has crept into the medical uh, world. And then think about those of us, some of us doing this podcast that are needle phobic and big babies. And what this would that could be, be, David? Who would that be, Dr. Kipper? That, that would actually be me. It's so funny. Anna, really? do you care? Anna, do no. you care about needle? No, see, I no. don't either. You could inject. I would, I would be a fantastic phlebotomist. The worst thing David ever did to me with a needle, the only time a needle freaked me out was do you remember I had that splinter that you had to use a needle to get out? That was not that I didn't. But I don't, needle, although, and David in his practice, uses the smallest because of he's needlephobic uses the smallest tiny needle and the goal in his office is you don't feel it you don't know, know that you got a needle which is amazing but think about this you go to the doctor the doctor wants to know not just your sugar level but wants to know your sodium your magnesium your kidney proteins the creatinine the liver enzymes there's a myriad a number of tests that we look at as diagnosticians. If you can do this for sugar, the interstitial fluid around these cells also has sodium and magnesium and creatinine and all these other things. So you may never have to go to a doctor. You just wear this watch and you can report in. Well, it's fascinating too, because as somebody who has to go get her blood work done three to four times a year, if you're able to monitor some things that way, and then there's just fewer vials because they, they sit and they have to do the next vial and then the next vial and then the next vial. It's like 14 vials every time. So the fact that they could just get it with such a small amount of blood is pretty cool. Hold on, everybody. Listen, if you if you listen quietly now, you can hear Elizabeth Holmes screaming. I was, I was close. I just needed another billion dollars and I could have done this. <laughs> I just needed Except a her watch. voice was down here like this. Exactly. Theranos. They had it. Theranos. <laughs> so the problem, by the way, the problem that Apple's having now, and they, they anticipate this is probably two years away, is that the watch is the size of Cleveland in order to have this technology. <laughs> Who's the then you look like Flava Flav. Yeah. <laughs> Flava Flav is ahead of his time. The Flava Flav uh, yeah. health watch. It's actually, it's actually Flava Flav's big clock he wears around his neck is actually a heart monitoring device. And it works fabulously well. And also takes MRIs. It's an amazing, amazing it's thing. Really. <laughs> so, Chris, uh, I, I thank you for your call because this opens up a very interesting conversation. And for big babies like me, this really is hopeful. I hope I live long enough to be able to wear one of these watches. So, Doc, you never prick your finger and do and check your blood sugar? Or... Oh, God, no. Really, I do it every well, day. I have my I have my blood tested um, every year. Like, Good, I'm I'm glad. And I've fortunately been able to dodge the diabetes issue. But no, I I I do this, and you know I'm I've been out of medical school for a hundred years. I'm still not good about this. So, but but when you have to administer to other people, do you feel 
apprehensive? Not at all. Not at all. It's just Piece you don't cake. want it coming at you. Absolutely. Piece okay. of cake. I also have, as Peter said, in my office, when we get our flu vaccines, it comes with an attached needle. I take that needle off and I put right. one on that's half the size of that. It still works. Good. Don't forget, if you have a question for Dr. Kipper, let us know. Go to bedsidematters.org, write us a note, leave us a message, and Dr. Kipper just might answer your question. So let's recap what we've learned and discussed today. Uh, a possible link has been suggested between this sugar substitute and heart issues, and the uh, sweetener is possible, possible connection, so you want to be aware of that. Don't be afraid to have a little sugar and a little honey. Spinal cord stimulation can restore arm mobility after a stroke, right, David? Yes, and this devastating news that patients and families get after a stroke or a spinal cord injury, there is some hope. Which is great. Another person, a fifth person, has been cured of HIV with a bone marrow transplant, which portends well for the future and other, other illnesses which may benefit from this, correct? And then also, Apple, maybe, what are you thinking, David, a year or two away from... No I'm thinking two, I'm thinking probably two years before they get this. But but again, extrapolate what Apple's doing for sugar into what AI is going to add into this equation for testing other things. So this would be a no-prick blood glucose test. And I was shocked, David, that the, the, the statistic for diabetes is not pre-diabetes. It's one in 10 Americans or higher. I think now that's about right. Wow. It's going up because of the obesity issue in this country. But... That's about right. And we don't know what percentage are undiagnosed. Look at Professor Laurie's making a face. Yeah, we're in. Well, the obesity rate, like I said, is, is through the roof. So I want to thank you, Anna, for today and Dr. Kipper, producer Laurie. And by the way, I want to mention something real quick. Anna, you should go to her site. I used, last night, I used your pasta, your pasta sauce, which was terrific. You did? Yes, I did. I, I love your pasta Wonderful. sauces. You should thank go you. to Anna's site, which is eathappykitchen.com. And she's got recipes. And she's got uh, sauces. Nary, nary a grain of erythritol to be found. There you go. Always gluten-free. And, of course, uh, your brain controls you, but it doesn't have to. If you read Override, you can find out how your brain chemistry is making decisions for you. And you can actually maybe take back a bit. Of, you know how, how they say the phrase, which creeps me out, I want to be the best me. Well, you may be able to be the best you or change the you and the bad habits you have if you're aware of why you're making those bad habits. And it's a good chance they're related to your brain chemistry. So the book is called Override. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And don't forget to follow us at bedsidematters.org. And if you have a medical question you need answered, go to bedsidematters.org and send it to us. And we will see you on the next episode. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.